So good afternoon, everyone, from One King Street Hotel, West Hotel in downtown Toronto. Welcome to the 112th season of the Empire Club of Canada. And for those of you just joining us through either our webcast or our podcast, uh, welcome to our meeting. And before our distinguished speakers are introduced today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our head table guests. And I'd ask that each guest uh, rise for a brief moment when your name is called and that the audience refrain from uh, from applauding until all head table guests have been introduced. So in no particular order, uh, we will start with Mr. Bliss A. White. Uh, Bliss, a partner at Blake's Castles and Graydon, LLP. Ms. Andrea Stairs, the Managing Director, eBay Canada. Ms. Amber Canwar, the anchor and reporter, Business News Network. Shelley Martin, President and Chief Executive Officer, Nestle Canada Incorporated. Ilsa Trinicht, the CEO, Mars Discovery District. Marty Deacon, Canadian Olympic Committee, Executive Board Member, Superintendent of the Waterloo Region District School Board. Jill Lowry, Partner, Blake, Castles, and Graydon, LLP. Andrea Wood, Senior Vice President, Legal Services, TELUS, Past President, Empire Club of Canada, and the woman who taught me everything I know. Thank you so much, Andrea. Sarah McAvoy, Vice President and Corporate Communications Lead, Edelman. Mr. Thomas Chanzi, Vice President of Public Affairs, Ontario Trillium Foundation, and a Director of the Empire Club of Canada. And last but definitely not least, Ms. Stephanie McKendrick, President of McKendrick and Associates International Incorporated, Co-Chair of the Steering Committee, 30% Club Canada, and the Vice-Chair of Samara Canada. My name is Gordon McIver. I'm the Executive Director of the National Executive Forum on Public Property. Ladies and gentlemen, your head table. I'd also like to acknowledge the presence in the room today of uh, three of our past presidents, if they would just stand and be recognized, Verity Sylvester, John Campion, and, as I already introduced, Andrea Wood. Almost half a century ago, the Empire Club welcomed to its podium Ellen L. Fairclough. Canada's first woman cabinet minister. It was a different time, to be sure, and we were still at least a decade away of what would eventually become known as the woman's movement. But already on that cold December day in 1957, Minister Fairclough was speaking very plainly about the need to get more women into the executive suites and boardrooms of the nation. I'd like to read you a very short quote from that historic speech. In spite of the large number of women shareholders in business and finance, the names of relatively few women appear in the lists of directors of Canadian companies. It is my conviction that this situation will change in the next 10 years, but I think that I would be dodging facts if I did not admit that, although legislation has been adopted in most of Canada today, which gives equal pay for equal work to men and women, There has as yet not been general acceptance of the principle of equal opportunity. So, that was 50 years ago. And by the way, Minister Fairclough was invited to speak to the club on the first Ladies' Day of that season so that women could attend and hear her. They were different times, as we've stated. But today, we're going to explore if they really were so very different than than back then in 1957, for successful, bright female leaders in Canada as they make their way to the top of their respective organizations. Now, to help us have this discussion, we're delighted to welcome to the Empire Club four dynamic leaders. In no particular order, let me now introduce our panel members to you today, starting with Andrea Stairs. And by the way, while I'm introducing them, if they could make their way up to the podium and and have a seat, that probably would uh, uh, make it more, more punctual. So Andrea Stairs is Canada's Managing Director for eBay. Andrea leads the Canadian strategy and operations of one of the world's largest online marketplaces and Canada's second largest e-commerce business. 
A fully bilingual native of Montreal, Andrea is responsible for cultivating eBay's community of Canadian users from individual users to established brands and retailers. Next, we're delighted to have with us today Il Stronicht, the CEO of Mars Discovery District, who oversees both the development and operations of the Mars Centre and its broad suite of entrepreneurship and innovation programs. She's an active member of our country's innovation community and has been ever since graduating from Oxford University, which, by the way, she attended as a Rhodes Scholar. Thirdly, we're fortunate to have with us today Shelley Martin, the President and CEO of one of our most iconic brands, Nestle Canada Incorporated. She has executive responsibility for Nestle in Canada, which includes numerous food and beverage divisions and employs approximately 3,600 people in 23 facilities across the country. Finally, because I said at the outset that we had four remarkable women with us today, we're delighted to have with us a well-known and extremely respected anchor, uh, and I'm referring to Amber Canwar, who is a reporter, of course, with Business News Network. We've all watched Amber reporting on upcoming deals and IPOs slated to hit the market, and she's probably one of the most plugged-in reporters in the country on such diverse issues as the turnaround effort at BlackBerry or on various initiatives by some of the country's pipeline companies. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome all of our panelists to the podium today, and uh, I will now hand the microphone over to Amber to begin today's discussion. Welcome. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this lunch hour. This is an issue that is very important to me, and you've proved through your attendance that it is important to you. Now, I traffic in numbers all day at BNN, and the numbers in this case don't lie, notwithstanding all the measures that have been made to affect the change of women's position in this world. Still, women make about 70% of what a man's wage is for the same job, even if they are full-time employees. There's only about 5% representation of female CEOs at Fortune 500 companies, and only 20% of S&P 500 board seats are occupied by women. Now, those are the statistics, but the women up here show that statistics were not their destiny. And that is what we hope to talk about a little bit today, is how, whether or not that is the case that you are born into, how you can control your own destiny through your actions. So I hope that you enjoy the conversation. Let's start, ladies, with uh, this concept. I mean, the elephant in the room is that women have babies and men don't. And that is the the issue of this notion of so-called having it all. Some say women can't have it all, some say they can, and some just get very angry at the mention of women having it all. Let's start with you, Andrea. How do you think about this concept of having it all? So I'm in the camp of finding this a completely unhelpful concept. Uh, A, I don't even know what it means, and then B, striving for it seems to be without purpose, frankly. Um, I also don't think that balance is particularly helpful. I think that uh, we all are managing multiple things simultaneously, and if we happen to hit balance, that's on the way from one extreme to another, um, a sort of passing through. I like to think more about um, the idea of managing your career um, and um, being very purposeful about where you're putting your efforts and, pri and priorities. So the idea of, you know, like you're driving a car, when do you put your foot on the gas and when do you take it off? I don't think that you can manage a career and a family and all of your outside interests at full tilt simultaneously for your entire career. It's, it's unmanageable and, you know, I've seen friends burn out. Um, and so it's a question of when are you putting your foot on which pedal and necessarily when are you taking your foot off what other pedal? Um, and so, you know, I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and so there's there's a certain amount of work there, and then, you know, there's there's work at work, and then there's work with my spouse. And so, you know, I think that that is an ongoing challenge, and, and so having it, it all is, 
I really don't think it's very helpful. Shelley, where do you stand in this debate? Because when you're, to use the car metaphor, when you're trying to strive for leadership, you're trying to go further than other people at the same time of perhaps managing a family life. I, I would agree with Andrea, and I think that um, everyone has their own definition of balance, and I think that the balance conversation ends up that there's some magic math notion that everyone has the same. And in my experience, balance changes by the day. Your, your work-life balance, if you want to call that, can change depending what's going on with you or with your family. So, so what I always tell you know, new parents coming back to work, maybe after, after being off for maternity paternity leave, is don't stress about it. And, and you will never be in someone else's balance, but you need to be clear on what your priorities are in your life what your priorities are for that day, and, and, and have that drive whatever it is, whether that's spending time at work or, or not spending time at home, but just be true to yourself on what those priorities are. And so you travel uh, a lot. How do you manage this notion of balance? I guess I, I um, to echo Andrea's point, I, I take a somewhat philosophical view of the inputs into this notion of balance. and. I think for most people at any moment in time, something is seriously out of whack. <laughs> and so you have to make peace with that right up front. And then um, perhaps it's helpful to think about this notion of you know, balancing career interests, family interests, community interests, personal interests in a sort of a long sinus wave over your lifetime where in certain periods um, children will take priority and in other periods, but there will be periods where some of those pressures uh, will be less. And so um, don't, don't think you have to give up on them, just park them for a while. Well, let's uh, pick up on that notion of crisis management. That's what every leader at their essence, uh, you know, that is why they are a leader because they can do it uh, better than uh, somebody who's not leading the team. What skills do you think are important when you're dealing with a crisis? How do you approach it, uh, Ilsa, when you see something that's happening, not just because you're a woman, but in fact because you're a leader, something must be managed. How do you approach it? Um, I think as we, you know, as we um, accumulate more experiences and take on more responsibilities, uh, one of the things that you certainly uh, build competency in is responding to uncertainty or navigating uncertainty. Um, I think that is uh, that is one of the the very key attributes of um, you know an increasingly complex uh, working world, whether you're a leader in it or or not, and. Um, and I think being, you know, in the moment incredibly focused on the, the data coming in, but really keeping an eye on what's important for the long haul um, is, uh, is the challenge, is to not be overwhelmed by the demands in the moment, um, but keep, keep focused on what, what needs to happen to get through the, the crisis in a, in a way that is, uh, is to the benefit of the organization in the long run. I imagine day-to-day, none of you think about, I'm a woman and this is what I'm going to do today. But as a leader, are you attuned to the fact that other people might be thinking that when you are trying to manage day-to-day or manage through a crisis? Shelley? I don't think that at all. Um, (laughs) I hope not, uh, honestly, uh, because I think it's just being about a leader. And I think that if we were to you know, carry that burden that would add different complexity. And and I prefer to think that we're working in a world now where that isn't so so obvious or isn't someone's thought that we have. I think, you know, probably the only time I think about it is when I'm trying to put together a portfolio of styles for something. So, you know, eBay is our Toronto office, our Canadian office is here in Toronto. We have a head office in San Jose. We often need to be kind of advocating on the on Canada's behalf, and I think that's probably something that everyone's experienced. Um, and so, thinking about um, a portfolio of styles and a way of tackling a problem, and so it's less about male, female, and more about what kind of styles can I bring, and sort of knowing what my style is, and can I complement that with with somebody else who brings a little bit of a different style, or, or should I be moderating my style, my like sort of home style, a little bit into something that would be more effective in this situation? Um, so it's, it's, you know, there are, without being it, it being about men and women, there are more female styles and more male styles, just for 
lack of a better kind of phraseology, and I think sometimes I think about it that way in terms of creating a good mix. Um, but yeah, I certainly don't go to work thinking, I'm a woman. <laughs> well, if you went to work in the 50s, people certainly thought, oh, you're a woman and you're, you're being a bad one because you're not at home with your children. And of course, we've come a long way since then. And I'm wondering if, through the lens of your own careers, have you seen that shift uh, in attitude towards uh, women in the workplace? And do you think that that's maybe created a, a bit of a tailwind for you? So I think I had an advantage because I grew up with a, um, a mom who was an executive and she was a single mom and uh, and so I got to see she would come home at the end of her day and sort of you need to tell somebody about what happened at work and her 16 year old daughter happened to be the the audience and so I kind of got a sense of what work was like and sort of the granular progression of work it wasn't sort of like you know this big thing and then that big thing I saw the the, the pieces in between and so I think that gave me. Um, huge advantage because I sort of had a sense of how I could be in business and didn't have to sort of think about um, some of the things that I think some of the women who join, you know, who join my team occasionally are sort of still thinking about, is business right for me and what does this look like and, and being, you know, a little bit more um, uncertain about what that path might be. Um, I don't know if that's answering your question, but... Well, it does, and I'll toss it over to Elsa because you're in the sciences, typically very male-dominated, but you've been there for a long time. How have the attitudes changed? You know, I have to say it's a bit sobering when you uh, when you think back where we were 50 years ago and the fact that we're even having this conversation today um, and how little progress we've really made with kind of this incremental approach program, um, you know, to boards or, or senior leadership positions. So uh, perhaps the, the transformation in, um, in male-dominated fields like science and technology or venture capital, where I spent some time, um, will come as workplaces are entering a period of extraordinary transformation through technology, through globalization, through demographics, through um, changing customer demands, changing uh, business models. And so many of the traditional workplaces where I think we've stalled uh, will, in fact, uh, have to undergo very significant change. And, you know, that's true of financial services, legal services, uh, many, many other businesses. And maybe that's the opportunity for disruption um, and where we might begin to finally design workplaces around the reality that women have babies, which we could put a man on the moon. I don't think this can be that hard. I'll just try to have a man have a baby. <laughs> then we'll never hear the end of it. Um, you're, uh, Nestle, you're very consumer-focused, uh, very oriented. That was seen as kind of one of the original industries that woke up to the fact that, hey, women are the decision-makers in the household. So have you seen that evolution? I would say in my time at Nestle in Canada, I have seen the evolution. So uh, shortly after I joined, we had our first uh, female executive uh, appointed uh, or hired actually, and she was actually hired and was and was expecting at the time. So you know it was sort of big on a couple of different fronts. Um, but but I would say that I I have never personally had that, and so um, I had the the pleasure of of working with the CEO who had a 50-50 balance on his executive team, and that was 20 years ago. Um, that was a purposeful thing, and that remains as we go forward. So, you know, in this country, I, I saw from, you know, quick progression through there, and uh, and I have, you know, daughters that are the famous millennials um, who don't get what the big deal is about, you know, feminism, and so I'm hoping that that will be some of the, the transition, because as the millennials come in to more leadership, I don't think that the female millennials they don't, don't maybe don't understand or don't have that history or you know it's they're just growing up in in what they're seeing now from many of us in in this room that it that's a foreign concept so therefore maybe just won't put up with or will be expecting 
no difference in gender. But as Ilsa mentioned, the progress that we've made, while it is progress, the numbers are still staggering, and and we haven't, we're nowhere near equality. So people want to be solutions-oriented and focus on how do we get that. They talk about quotas. They talk about mandating representation, not only in government, but uh, at the board level, at the management level. And that can be quite controversial. And I'm wondering, for you three as leaders, where do you sit on on that debate, Andrea? So um, I'm not sure about quotas, but I'm a very data-oriented, fact-based kind of person. That's how I make decisions. And, and, you know, we all in this room know that what, what what you measure gets attention and changes. And so I think things like, you know, comply or explain on, you know, the um, Canadian boards um, or, you know, forcing companies to, um, to, uh, to, to declare their, um, you know, the splits of both men and women, but also visible minorities, um, you know, within their full employee base and within their kind of executive or directors and above kind of level, um, I think is incredibly helpful. I think we need to just continue to shine a spotlight on the, the numbers and, and it's, I mean, I was in Silicon, like, I'm a Silicon Valley company, and in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of attention to particularly visible minorities and, and women, and um, and a lot of public pressure and media pressure to get those companies to declare where they're at, um, and it, very uncomfortable for those companies. And I think that's great. I think um, measuring things and and um, getting the data and putting it out there um, is is incredibly impactful. Elsa, you're nodding. Yeah, I would say absolutely, and I think it's up to women to demand that yeah. um, that those numbers be out there, and you know that we speak in our public voices and our votes and our um, any way we can. That uh, this is an expectation now that we have for women in the workforce, but particularly for our daughters um, going forward. Um, and, and I think also say something um, in our in our less public forum. So you know whether it's um, sort of pointing out to a male colleague that their management team is very male. Like, I, I think that's our job, and it's a very uncomfortable conversation, and you don't want to accuse someone of sort of being overtly, uh, you know, making decisions that are, that are sort of anti-woman or anti-anything else. Uh, but you do need to point it out, and I think, I think that's on us to actually do that and to have the conversations with your, you know, with your management um, teams that sort of say, hey, like, you know, the slate for this for this role, was this a balanced slate for that role that you've got, that job opening? You don't need to be, it doesn't need to be a massively confrontational, a single question, but it just, you know, kind of pops something that might be unconscious up to the, the conscious level. And I have, a, I have a diverting point of view from that standpoint. <laughs> um, while I think that it's important that we track and, and acknowledge the numbers, uh, I think within an organization working... Uh, to promote and to, from a manager level to have quotas and to reinforce that um, I think takes away from the benefit because I think then then if a woman gets the job it's uh, questions her ability and that oh well we needed 50% so that that's why you got the job as opposed to you were capable so I think it's that balance of that senior leadership uh, just make you know being um, aware as Andrea said <clears throat> but not forcing that through the organization because I think that'll diminish the work of just great people progressing as it goes forward. Maybe when it comes to external and boards and you know there might need to be to break down some barriers, there might need to be more measure there. Uh, and, and that may be as much about recruiting women. I'm not sure whether, you know, or some of those numbers because women aren't asking or putting themselves to be selected as opposed to not being chosen. And I think we just need to be clear of that as we go forward as well. So if the onus uh, falls on the individual, whether a man or woman, to get out front uh, for management so that you can be selected or at least be noticed for the work that you're doing, uh, how do you do that? How did you go about getting out front, or as Sheryl Sandberg likes to say, leaning in? So for me, I think though, um, I was at a dinner several years ago, and um, uh, and someone mentioned a stat that actually ends up coming from Catalyst about um, the fact that I think the most impactful thing that uh, to a woman's career um, of all of the different things that you can do is actually to have a, a male sponsor. And that sort of went into my head and went click. And so I thought, okay, if that's the most impactful thing, let's go and do that. Um, and so, uh, and, and I didn't restrict myself to men, but I definitely 
put a plan together and, and very actively pursued um, sponsorship, which is different than, in my, in my case, very different than mentorship. I mean, the kinds of sponsors, the sponsors that I have, um, we have a very direct conversation about, this is where I want to go. Do you think I'm qualified? If so, will you advocate on my behalf in whatever closed door meeting that decision will be made in? And what do you need from me? Do you need talking points? Do you need data? Like, do you, do you need content to advocate on my behalf? And so it's a very transactional conversation. The first time I did it, I was terrified. Um, but it turns out that they've all done it before with their bosses. And so everyone is sort of all on the same page. Um, and, and so I think that is one way where you can take the reins of your own career uh, and, um, and be, very, be your own advocate, but also uh, take advantage of other people's power and, and use it to your own advantage. No wonder you work at eBay. You think in transactions. <laughs> uh, what, what about you? Can you think of different ways, Shelley, uh, how you got out front? It was nothing purposeful. It's like just being the best I can be every day in every situation. So it, um, I can honestly say that I went into a room saying I'm going to take advantage of this room, you know, any different than any other thing. It was just... Um, every day being, as, as I said, the best I could be as it went forward. Um, and, you know, yes, I had sponsors, but they would be sponsors sort of organically through, through an organization as opposed to a direct, although I have heard many people that have done as Andrea did. But in our culture, that isn't so much the case, and it's uh, mm -hmm. showing great work all the time. Yes, mm -hmm. what? I can't claim a grand plan. Um, I'm... Uh, you know, I think going back to this, this conversation, I think what we have to do also is that sponsorship or that advocacy for women leaders need to get beyond just it's a nice thing to do because we don't have enough women. I think we have to bring the debate back to the fact that we are in a global talent war. Yeah. Um, Canada can't win with half our team mm -hmm. on the field. Mm -hmm. and. This is about betting the best people working on the most important projects and getting beyond also um, very fixed views of what, you know, the perfect leadership model is. Um, you know, if business today is, business as usual is not working, it's because leadership as usual is not working and it's time for us to really open up our minds to new approaches um, not just from women, but from, from diverse, uh, a diverse range of people with different experiences so that we can tackle some of these uh, complex challenges in a different way. And uh, that might open up more opportunity for women rather than be brought out of the cheap seats as a bit of a society's favor um, to women. Well, I was going to say, I think that, I mean, the, the, there are studies and the data shows that, that um, far from making teams less cohesive, diversity actually makes them more cohesive, and, and there's more of a sense of, of togetherness and belongingness when you recognize people's individuality, which is sort of, you know, you wouldn't think, but, um, and that, that then drives innovation, as, yeah. as you would totally expect, um, and we're all so sort of innovation, you know, either capital I or little I is so essential for us now, particularly, you know, where Canada's at, um, that you sort of think, how could you not want this? How could you not take advantage of this, this advantage that is sort of sitting there for the, just in their grasp? Yeah, and I think that the technology is going to challenge, as you said, the, you know, the, the way leaders are, um, but from a business going forward. So the whole time shifting of when you work, the flexible work hours, the flexible work locations and spaces, and you don't need to come in an office with a door at nine to five, partly because we're in a global world, but partly because technology enables work in different ways to put teams together from around the world. Um, and taking advantage of that, I think, is going to be a, maybe a disruptor from a, a leadership standpoint, but it's going to help all young leaders to evolve uh, in a different way. But but as the older leaders, we need to be open to that adjustment and change because having that face-to-face -face time or, you know, well, that's not the way we always did it, mm -hmm. you know, being open to those changes and, and letting that happen and exploring that for ourselves as well as for, for younger people coming through. One of the oldest uh, trends in business, and let's face it, cliques don't go away. When you're in high school, when you get into the job network, there's the old boys network, which uh, even in today's society definitely exists. You know, I think about banking, and I see, you know, um, 
trips to Las Vegas for a closing dinner for three days with eight guys, you know, they're not going to the spa for those three days. Uh, or, you know, you've got, you've got road shows and things like that. That tends to be, you know, going to the golf course. Women can pick up golf, absolutely, but that tends to be, you know, something that exists within most industries. So how do you crack that? So I think it doesn't exist in my industry. And so maybe you self-select to industries where you're not, and this is a horrible thing to say, but where, where you have a bit of an easier time and you don't have that. Um, I was in finance, and when I was in finance, in corporate finance, I, I didn't find it to be uh, a particularly um, sort of, ma- I mean, it was obviously male-dominated, but I didn't feel like it was a particular disadvantage. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that, uh, I don't know. It's not big in our industry either. I mean, and that is another thing that's changed. You know, the golf tournaments Mm -hmm. through the summer, that sort of stuff. I mean, there's a few of those, but it isn't this business isn't done on the golf course as it used to be. Um, And I think, you know, for it to change, while it's not my life, uh, for it to change, it is going to be for senior people to say, yeah, no, we don't need to do that. We're going to do something else that is more inclusive. And because to me, doing that isn't just about a male thing. That is about, that's about a family change. I mean, you know, now people want to stay home with their families and do that as opposed to do a lot of corporate stuff as well. And so, so I think that notion of being respectful to the team members and, and team involved and challenging that or enabling a challenging conversation to try something different, I think is going to be helpful. One of the uh, consequences of, you know, opening up more management spots, leadership spots for women is that there's still fewer of them. And I've seen that in my own industry where what that creates is actually a more intense competitive environment among women uh, than it does among uh, men. And so you don't get this sense of um, women helping each other to raise each other up uh, as much as it might seem natural for men. Now, that's just my experience in the media, but I'm wondering, do you see that playing out as well and how... Um, as an employee who has a leadership goal, how do you combat that? Elsa, we'll start with you. You know, I, uh, I absolutely believe that for women to succeed, women have to support each other. And I've been extraordinarily fortunate in terms of, um, you know, meeting, working with, uh, becoming friends with extraordinary women, women all my life, and I have no idea how my life would function without them. Um, so I, I'm incredibly intolerant to that notion, um, and um, I think there, there's a great uh, communion between women all over the world that is quite fundamental, I think, to the health of our society, and uh, we need to find every possible way to strengthen those networks rather than undermine them. Um, and in industries where that is not the case, I would, I would absolutely say we have to, even if the numbers are small, um, I think we have to find every way possible to get rid of that dynamic because it can be, you know, it's, it's extremely unhelpful for, on so many levels. Um, and, um, and I think it starts with the women leaders in that organization, actually. I think the whole idea that there's a zero-sum game is... Like it's so not helpful. It isn't a zero-sum game. We're all trying to get more out of less, and you know, get more out of whatever resources we happen to be, whether they're human or otherwise. And so, this whole idea that we're all competing for, you know, we're, we're all in competition with each other, and I, like I think it is down to the leadership of companies to sort of to, to banish that construct. So I don't actually think that's helpful. You're competing against your competitors. You're not competing against each other. Um, you're trying to get the best teams possible in order to do that. You know, it, it, it accrues to everyone's benefit if that team is an exceptional team. Everyone gets recognized. I think that's the kind of culture that you need to, you need to create and, um, and exemplify. Um, you know, I think they, they call it sort of the queen bee syndrome. And I, actually, I've never seen it. Um, you know, to your point, I think that there's an amazing amount of, of support um, uh, amongst women. Um, and I, I think it's, um, you know, there's also an amazing amount of support from men. Like, you know, it's not a us versus them. Like, there's, there's um, you know, in my career, 
my the kind of the, the people who have moved me forward have been have been men who have recognized you know whatever they thought was special in me and have kind of you know made sure that I had opportunities and so um, you know I don't think that setting this up as kind of a, a competition is is I think that's something that we should actually avoid and discourage because I don't actually think it's the case. So as a leader, Shelley, uh, how do you do that? How do you ensure that that is not what happens in your organization? I, it's by being gender neutral on any kind of opportunities uh, or promotions that are available. So, um, you know, it, it's it's for the skills and, and building the right team. Uh, and. I don't think, it hasn't been my experience, and I don't think that if you talked within the organization that gender is on anyone's mind uh, in terms of where they stand, what their competitive set is. I just talked to them like, you, you need to have the greatest toolbox, tools in your toolbox, and, and gender is never part of that. It's about your experiences and your skills. One of the uh, trailblazers of the day, and there are so many to choose from, but you know, I think about in uh, my world how how much people obsess over the success that Marissa Meyer is having, uh, even though you know she's doing it while pregnant. They're just gobsmacked that the brain continues to function uh, while while you carry children, and that uh, strikes me as you know somebody that young people can really latch onto. Uh, in terms of role models, and I imagine each of you had somebody that you were latching on to in terms of what was driving you forward, and is it an example of what you could be? Could you, uh, maybe we'll start with you, uh, Andrea, just, you know, who was that person? What was it about them that made you kind of strive for what they had? So, my mom is sitting right over there. <laughs> and she very, she very much was my, my role model. Um, Probably very, very early. I, I used to, I, I was in high school, I was 12, and, I, and my friends would be sitting in the locker room floor and everyone would be talking about what they wanted to do when they grow up, and no one would ever ask me. And it drove me nuts because I had a really prepared answer, and they would never ask me. And so finally I sort of said, why aren't you guys asking me what I want to do when I grow up? And they were like, ugh, it's so boring. You just want to go into business. <laughs> and so I kind of knew very early, and it was very much seeing, you know, seeing someone very up close and seeing um, how they were managing their career. I remember when she became vice president, coming into the house and walking up the stairs and going, kids, I got it. And we were so enthusiastic because we'd been part of the team, sort of behind the scenes, trying to get her there. And uh, and so, so vested. And so I think I think that example of, of that, again, seeing the granularity and seeing how it comes together bit by bit and taking a very long view of your career. Um, all came from from watching my mom's career, and so that's been very formative for me. Um, I, I just want to make one comment on the, that's a bit of a watch out, I think, for we have these all the you know the the celebrity yes, yes, uh, yes. female CEOs that you know ooh, a week later they're back at work, and I'm not sure that that's the right role model, and I and I worry that that's um, putting expectation on people, you know, either around it's like well you know. She came back. Why can't you know? Why are you taking your year off? And I think we just have to be careful for that again, in terms of being respectful to what people's priorities are and setting a new expectation of well, if you're not you know in the office and, and managing your child, you know, the day after you've delivered, then you're not you know you're like you're, you're not not, not a great mom and you're not committed you're not to the committed, business. Yeah. So we need to be careful on that. From a mentor, um, to me, uh, you know, there's been many people that have been uh, been been in my life, but. It, that's, that's shown me the way, but it would be uh, my first boss at Nestle, who was a man, wasn't a woman, and that was just about a leadership style of, um, you know, being open and respectful to everybody and their ideas, being collaborative on that, but making a quick decision uh, and taking accountability on behalf of the team to make things happen and follow it up. So just simple, basic, uh, but you know, stopping and listening and being focused on whatever is talked about and and then moving forward from that. So basic leadership stuff, but it sticks with me every day. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in uh, anti-apartheid South Africa, so I always had enormous um, admiration for the women of all you know, backgrounds who kind of kept the healthcare system and the education system um, operating through that period. And, and even today, I love women like uh, Mary Robinson, who you know, led a country and is now looking after 
what's happening to the world's most vulnerable people through climate change. I mean, those women, I think, are iconic. Um, but I, you know, the most remarkable person I've ever worked with is certainly John Evans, who was the founder of Mars, and um, I had the privilege of working pretty closely with him for a number of years. And he was an extraordinary combination of a true visionary person, very ambitious ideas for Canada, but a really practical streak in terms of bringing the, those ideas into reality. Um, he was an extraordinarily accomplished person who had absolutely no interest in the limelight. Um, but the most remarkable thing about him was in his one-to-one -one interactions with people that were so kind and so generous and so effortlessly brought out the best in them. And I think when you look at that combination of factors, there's no question it was that fabric of incredibly positive, small human interactions that uh, allowed him to, to move mountains. And I have never seen anything like that. Um, it was truly, truly amazing. A lot of our discussions have focused around getting to the role that you want, having the level of status uh, that your hard work dictates that you should have. But at the end of the day, you got to get paid. And this is where uh, women generally don't get paid as much. And a lot of it, or, or I won't say a lot actually, some of it comes down to uh, this notion that women don't ask. It, when it comes down to the negotiation process and pushing for more, because they're ready to give you that title, they're ready to give you more work, uh, but how much are they willing to pay you for that? So maybe if you could shed some insight into negotiation skills that every upcoming leader needs to know, needs to have, skills that have worked out for you when you've been negotiating, not only for your rightful place, but your rightful paycheck. Um, so, you know, this is, um, so you, ha you obviously need to ask. Um, I think this is where having a really strong group of sponsors actually takes a lot of the weight off you, because I think if you can um, enlist people um, into your corner, that actually helps you so to make sure that, you know, A, that you're getting the role, but you're getting it at the right, the right threshold of, of whatever. Um, it's very difficult to go into a manager's office and say, hey, you know, the other guy down the hall is, seems to be making more than me, or, you know, like nobody really knows, and then there's all this explanation. So I don't have a really great solve for that. Obviously, you do need to ask, you do need to figure out, do some research and figure out what it is that you should be asking for. Um, you know, I have a, a sort of an informal personal board of directors. They're essentially, they're people, who co former colleagues and friends um, who I respect and who have, uh, who, you know, aren't sort of, don't have a, a personal stake in my career, but who care deeply about it. And I think that's sort of a conversation that I would have with one or two of them would be, you know, is, is, what is what is sort of market like, and, and what is what should I be asking for, and does this seem about right? But I think you know conversations about money are particularly difficult to have. Um, I, I was just listening to um, a, a presentation by by someone from Catalyst who found they've done a massive global study, and they actually found that um, the average starting salary for women coming out of university. Um, and uh, like versus like for, for jobs um, around the world, there's a $4,000 gap. And in Canada, it's actually an $8,000 gap. And then you layer on that the fact that women tend to do more mentoring as, and less sponsoring, and men the inverse, just for whatever reason, it doesn't really matter, means that you know the, the women's curve kind of does this while the men's curve does that just because of the effectiveness of the sponsorship. So I think that sort of speaks to the fact that there's, there's more than one issue here. There's multiple issues. But what about, you know, you brought up an interesting point when you know somebody that does your job, that's a man, that makes more than you, how do you, how do you bring that up to your boss? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think, you, I think you have to, delicately. Like, how do you, you know, how, whatever it is, the porcupine, how do you kiss a porcupine? Delicately. You, you bring it up delicately. Um, uh, I think... But you bring it up. Well, I think you do. I, I don't know who wins if you don't. You certainly don't. I mean, it's one of those things of, like, what's the worst that can happen? Your manager will say, no, you're completely wrong. Okay, well, I mean, 
if that's the worst that could happen, that's not, that, I mean, it, that's sort of an uncomfortable conversation, but at least you've put him on notice or her on notice that you're watching. Yeah. So if nothing else, then people kind of know that you're paying attention. Yep. How do you negotiate? I don't have a lot to say to add to that. So it's being clear and doing your research just to have an understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> say no. So you have to you have to go and, and understanding. But you have to have your facts. So it's, yeah, because you know, the challenging thing is, well, it is not just about the level. It's about the skills and competency and how well someone's doing. And that's where it gets gray. And, and performance and experience. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's where you have to, again, you need to do the research because it's not just about title. Um, and sometimes those are honest conversations, good or bad, on, yeah, well, that person might be better than me, but, but do that and check yourself on that first. And I don't think you can have an expectation of having the person say, oh, you're right. Like, the, yeah. in, in no scenario does that conversation end with, you know what, and I'm giving you a raise in this, in yeah. this room. Like, it, it, this is a multi-phase conversation, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, I, and you sort of have to feel your way through, but in... You know, I think you have to think of what's the worst that can happen and what's the realistic outcome. The realistic outcome is they think, is they sort of say something non-committal and, and leave the room. You know, after that meeting without making any comment, any commitment at all. But they're thinking about it. But they're it. thinking about it, and that is the victory. And you have to think about this as a long game, not a not a one-off. No. It sounds like what they're saying. You know, you have to go in. You have to be prepared to ask. And if you get kind of a wavering answer. That's not necessarily the end of it. Be prepared for more follow-up conversations. Yeah, I would say. I mean, certainly, I think this is uh, this kind of structural, you know, barriers or differentials are probably more prevalent in large organizations where there are multiple people at certain levels. Um, most of the roles I've had have been in sort of more startup type organizations, and to be honest, I've been extremely um, unfocused on money. Um, all my life, and it usually works out. Um, if you pick a great organization with great people, without a lot of structure, those things tend to kind of find a, a place that uh, that works. If you leave the workforce for any period of time, do you essentially kiss your leadership opportunities goodbye? And that is uh, at the root what many people are worried about, why somebody comes back from maternity leave after a week or or doesn't take the full time because they're afraid um, of disappearing. Uh, I, I understand the, the fear on that. I think that it, you got to choose the, the company that's going to be respectful and 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 you know, of the individual and of the family. And I think now it's not just about the moms; it's about the dads as well. And uh, and and we we've just you know announced that we're putting in a longer paternity care. You've got the legal opportunities from a paternity care standpoint, but a lot of young dads are wanting either to take the time. But also through raising the children, wanting to go to the, the Christmas concert or go to the doctor's appointment, um, and I think that that it's making sure that there's balance on that. Um, and for the first guys that are taking paternity leave, you know, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stigma that goes with that as too. So having a company and everybody support those decisions to go forward, and and supporting uh, young fathers supports young mothers at the same time because he's wanting to be involved and to be, and, and maybe he's doing the doctor's appointment because she can't because of her work. And so to me, I don't delineate between, it's supporting young parents because that supports both genders and, and their leadership challenges as they go forward. Andrea, you have young children, two and four, uh, I believe. Were you afraid of disappearing because you are you know, managing director of eBay Canada? Were you afraid to take time? No. Okay. Um, I think, uh, hey, internally, you know, I think in Canada, at least, you know, amongst among my generation and younger, I think the maternity leave, having a year, up to you how much of that year you're going to take, that feels pretty baked in now. Um, I think paternity leave is definitely something that we need to work on and, and to your point, celebrate the people who take it and, and make very positive examples of them as opposed to kind of making them seem like exceptions or, well, you know, I don't know about that. Um, uh, I think the harder question is, um, you know, if you're going to take several years off. So I think that I think the I think businesses are, are pretty much set up now, particularly in Canada, to deal with a, a one-year maternity leave. And, and you know, I, I didn't take the whole year, but I took a I certainly took a lot more than Marissa Mayer. Um, and uh, and I didn't really know how much I was taking when I went off, right? So mm-hmm. I sort of 
you know, maybe I'll be back in six months, maybe I'll be back in eight months. Um, but I think, you know, the decision to take multiple years off to stay home while your kids, in, until your kids are four and five, I think that is still one where, to be frank, I think we'd probably still grapple with that question. And I don't think that you've kissed leadership bye-bye, but I do think that it's a significantly bigger challenge to come back from that than to come back from maternity leave, where, where the business has kind of sorted that out more. I would certainly say, you know, one-year maternity leaves are common now and, and wasn't common when my kids were young, for sure. Um, and I, I almost see a different emergence now that I'm quite interested in, and you know, among the, the women that I know. I think the reality still is that many workplaces are not really set up uh, for women to shine in that period when they have a lot on their mind. Their kids are young. Uh, stuff happens with kids. Um, but there's also no question that as, as kids leave home, um, there's a lot of energy and capacity that emerges for women. And I see amazing women doing amazing things in their 70s, 80s, 90s. And, and I wonder if our workplaces will shift to take advantage of that sort of unleashed energy uh, from these amazing women. Um, I hope we do, because it will be such a loss if we don't. Um, they're amazing. You said, though, that workplaces are not necessarily well-equipped to uh, be there during the times that they are absent. What specific strategies do you think might help to allay a employee's concern that they're going to disappear, uh, thus encouraging them to come back to work maybe before they're ready? What can leaders do? Well, I think it depends very much on the industry. I mean, the areas where it's tough is if you're an academic professor and you have to earn tenure and in your 30s you have to publish like crazy to, to hit the bar to, uh, to move forward. Um, you know, this is the, the time when consultants have to travel. This is, there's a lot of structural stuff built into uh, many workplaces that make it difficult for women to just deal with the practicalities of, particularly if you have two parents on a, you know, on a traveling track. That's a really difficult one. Um, and I think the more we can just, as leaders, design flexibility that is just real um, and acknowledge people for who they are and what they bring to the workplace and give them room to deal with the rest of their life, they will reward us by bringing their best selves to work every day. Um, and the productivity gains will make up way more than any of our rules can, can uh, you know, structure um, to somehow the employer's benefit. Shelley, what do you do to kind of ensure that flexibility or maintain contact with people that are gone to make them feel like they're still part of the organization? Uh, well, people can choose to engage as they like while they're off, uh, but but uh, I think it is pushing on the flexibility and, and enabling that. And um, whether it's work from home, whether it's we have a Flex 4 program that people can take time through the week anytime, you know, for whatever reason they want. Um, I think that uh, we're exploring different office and, uh, and time uh, of the, through the clock uh, to enable people to do that. So that allows people different flexibility. We do not expect people to be engaged while they're off. If they've chosen to be off, then you need to be off for whatever that reason is. How they would want to stay engaged, that's up to them, but you know, we encourage that's time dedicated to your family that you need to, to support for yourself and to that family. You mentioned you came back earlier, but did you stay engaged during your um, mat leave? Um, yeah, I stayed engaged. Uh, I mean, you know, the first three months is a fog, so it was not engaged in the first three months. But after that, I was kind of, you know, engaged, and I would bring my son to work, and, you know, inevitably someone would want to take him from me <laughs> and sort of play with him, and I would, you know, meet with uh, meet with sort of my team and talk about issues. And um, but that was that was very much my choice, not something that was being. I felt absolutely no pressure. In fact, I had managers sort of saying, "Are you are you sure? Are you sure?" And it just you know, I'm the kind of person I, I don't like stuff happening that I don't kind of know what's going on. Um, but I mean, you know, on my team right now, we've got a, a lot of, um, a number of women who have very young families. And so working with them, having, uh, literally having a conversation this morning about, okay, well, you know, as, as one woman's husband's schedules changes and daycare pickup and drop off have to be juggled, I was like, you know, the nice thing about the internet is it's always on. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, if, if she needs to take two hours off in the middle of her day in order to be able to manage this and come back in the, in the evening, 
I don't care. I mean, I, I, I honestly don't. Um, and so just making sure that, she, and the purpose of this conversation was making sure that she knew that it was okay for her to have, mm-hmm. to sort of have that as part of her consideration set and that I was supportive of that. And I think, you know, whether or not she takes me up on it, I think it's important as leaders that we do convey that these are entirely valid options and that we'll be supportive of, of that and kind of give the, um, the choice back to the, um, to the employee, to the team member, to make the decision with their spouse or with their family, whoever, that makes the most sense for them. And I think that's when you get very committed employees. I mean, there's nothing that can drive loyalty more than that. Um, and, um, and, and people, you know, people are, um, are, are, you know, at their foundation good and want to do what's right for, for the company that they're employed if they feel loyal. And I think that's where you get great team members. Ladies, fascinating discussion. I'm not sure how we're doing for time. Do we have time for Q&A? Uh, maybe two questions. Two questions. Does anybody in the audience have a question before we wrap things up here? Oh, there's one over there. Hi. Oh, hi. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I like to, you touched on quotas a little bit, and I think one of the challenges with quotas is that in some industries we're still not even having as many, the volume of women entering that industry to discuss quotas. And I was at a great social media and tech roundtable where one woman said that she was having her five-year-old daughter engage in a robotics course. And I loved that idea because it wasn't just about, you know, ballet and gymnastics. It was also about robotics. So how are you, as leaders in your industries, encouraging very young women or even children to consider careers outside of what the norm may have been? So in my industry, what we find is that um, you don't need to tell high school students that a career in tech is cool or, or like, that, that, you know, that it's available. I think one of the challenges is that... Um, that high school students have is how do I get from where I'm at to to that career? I know that it's a good career, but how do I get there? Um, and so we're engaged in a number of activities, um, one called Career Mash, where we actually go in and we talk to high school students and talk about um, uh, our own backgrounds. And so mine is an undergrad in medieval history and a law degree and an MBA. Like I have on paper no qualifications to be running eBay Canada. Um, and you know our head of product, which is the head of the technical side of the business, has a degree in film. So I, I think. You know, we do need to encourage people to to to, um, to you know take those established career paths, and certainly ac- academia has a very established sort of step step one, step two, step three. But uh, but when you actually look around and you dig into who are running these companies, you've got a, like a crazy back set of backgrounds, and so. I think it's actually a disservice to say that everyone has to come through this single pipe into this, you know, this area. Um, that being said, getting women into the STEM industries and STEM kind of education programs is um, is definitely a huge focus. And I think actually we're we're moving the wrong way, um, which is really disappointing. And so figuring out ways to to engage women um, and sort of demystify it. Um, and, make it more practical, more relevant to what their personal affinities are is, is definitely something that I'm engaged in. It's, again, like all of these issues, it's not one, there's no silver bullet to this. Um, but I do think part of it is just sort of demystifying who's actually leading and, and where they got there and the fact that most of our careers are doing this, they're not doing that. And, um, and so that's, that means there's a lot of opportunity. Elsa, uh, sciences, that's uh, notoriously been a struggle for attracting female enrollments. Yeah, I think a lot of this is about exactly, um, as you've heard, you know, showing that there are multiple paths um, and at the same time conveying the excitement of, of science technology careers, which uh, often is, is missing. So, um, I mean, we're doing a lot of stuff now to bring entrepreneurship education into schools. Um, we had the whole summer full of coding camps for uh, for girls and so on. So I think opening up though many of those doors, but then telling the stories of people taking multiple paths to get to these interesting integrated, uh, you know, integrated career paths, I think is is a big is a big part of opening up the opportunities for people. Um, I think it's also in continuous. You know, it's very important to celebrate the women at the various stages along the way. So, uh, so young girls can see themselves um, in those next generation leaders. One of the things that happened at Mars, which I think is just a fascinating example, we run a very introductory program called Entrepreneurship 101 and it's open to students or 
you know, new Canadians or people in career transition, uh, it's free, it's, it's open access. And we started to integrate the concept of social innovation into hmm. this predominantly tech-based innovation program. We did not dumb down the technology content or the business content one bit, and within one year it went to 50-50, male-female. So the minute you could bring a values-based business approach, um, the women show up. So there's lots of ways, I think, beyond just opening certain gates that we can engage women in a new, new generation of business. And I think, you know, for all of us in business, we need to be reaching out to to young women and to young men. And, uh, you know, youth un unemployment is a big issue for, you know, in this country as mm -hmm. it is around the world. Uh, and and so, you know, we were launching a youth initiative to go out to uh, talk about what we're doing. But I think having having students with mentorships uh, into into companies, some supporting. Uh, through on-campus activity from the companies, particularly, you know, half of my executive team are female, so to be able to go out and have those conversations to show that there are multiple ways, that you're not committed if you, you know, sign up to whatever engineering in year one, that there's only one path and there's lots of different ways, um, and to have those converse, real conversations with people and have that, that intimate chance to have those uh, is really going to help. All right. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. Ilsa, Shelley, Andrea, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. And I'll throw it back to Gordon. Thank you. And here to, um, here to express our collective thanks is uh, Media Past President Andrea Wood. What an incredible session and an inspiring group of leaders. Thank you. In listening to our speakers today, I was struck by the differences uh, between each of our speakers and their personal styles. And I was struck by the different approaches they've each taken to succeeding in the workplace. There's still one thing that I think unites them all. If there's one thing that we learn today, it's that there is no one path to success. Uh, but there are some personal characteristics that I think define strong leaders, and uh, these women today demonstrated them in spades. Those characteristics are grit, determination, drive, commitment to excellence, clarity of purpose, having a great mom, great role models. On behalf of the Empire Club and those in attendance today, I want to thank you each for taking so much time to share your stories and your perspectives with us today. Your stories were inspiring and heartwarming and hopefully will contribute to us winning the global talent role that Ilsa has described. So thank you very much, ladies. Um, you've proven to us today that you're you, you refuse to have statistics be your destiny. And we're, we're very pleased to have learned from your example. So thank you very much on behalf of everyone here for helping us to better understand how to kiss a porcupine. Thank you, Andrea, and thank you, ladies. I just wanted to add my own thanks. And uh, listening to you today, it actually brought back such a poignant memory. Um, my dad used to be a, a CEO of a company, and once he told me the most difficult moment, or one of the most difficult moments he remembered in his career was the first board meeting where they had a female board director show up because no one knew what to say. They were, like, actually paralyzed with fear. And it's hard to believe today. And uh, this lady, by the way, was interviewed on television years later, and she always used to wear a suit and tie. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with wearing a suit and tie, but, but someone asked her, why do you always wear a suit and tie? And she looked at them as though they were really dumb and said it was to desexualize myself. It was to make people forget I was a woman in the boardroom. And I thought, wow, that is pretty amazing when you have to disguise yourself in the boardroom. So listening to you today, you, you brought a lot of things home that a lot of things are still problems, but there's a lot of progress that's being made as well. And I want to thank you very much for taking the time to join the Empire Club today. Wonderful session. Thank you.
Thank you to our, our very generous sponsors. I want to thank uh, Blake, Castles, and Graydon, and uh, Edelman as well for uh, sponsoring today's lunch. But we couldn't do it without you. Uh, I'd also like to thank Narrative PR, who was the original uh, group that came to us with the concept of doing a lunch on this subject. We're very thankful to you. I want to thank uh, the National Post uh, as our print media sponsor, and uh, also mediaevents.ca for live webcasting today's event. Follow us on Twitter at Empire underscore Club, and please visit us online at empireclub.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Please join us again soon. We have a remarkable fall lined up. Starting tomorrow, we have uh, a name which will probably be familiar to anybody that's a political junkie in the room, David Plouffe, largely credited with being the uh, primary architect behind Barack Obama's two wins in Washington. But he also is today the chief advisor to Uber. So he's here to talk about how do you get to be the world's largest transportation company without owning an asset. Uh, not, not a bad record. We also have Rachel Notley showing up next week, uh, who will give her, major, her first major speech outside of Alberta on, uh, on what is happening with the, uh, the crisis in the, uh, in the oil patch. Three days after that, on October 5th, our own premier will be here talk about women that lead. We've got a lot showing up here in the next season. And in December, we have the governor of the Bank of Canada coming to talk about uh, Canada's economic situation. Uh, so we hope you'll join us again during this fall season. And thank you very much for coming today, ladies and gentlemen. This meeting is now officially adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.